0: Mark chapter three. And uh, turn there, and we'll just pray that God will speak to us all. And let's, uh, let's do that, and we'll jump right in. Lord, we thank you that you've given us scriptures. Uh, they're alive, they're sharp, they speak, and we wanna hear them, we wanna understand them, Lord Jesus, so that we could follow you more closely. We could do the things that you've called us to do. We could avoid the things that are self-destructive, we, uh, we want to be good followers, consistent followers, and we sometimes don't know how. So open our minds to see, open our ears to hear, open our spirits to receive the good things that you have in store for us. In Jesus's name, and we all said, amen, amen. I, I, I'm not a big fan of like media, TV shows, movies that scare you. Like I, I don't go to horror films, I don't... I don't see the incentive on paying for someone to freak me out. You know, there are plenty of things in the world right now that freak me out for free. And so I just, I don't, I don't see spending the money on that. So it's really weird. I've never seen an episode of Grimm, even though it's like a Portland thing. Grimm, you know, that's enough for me to avoid it. Um, World War Z, I haven't seen it yet. Although I am eager uh, to see Babelicious, who's in there. What's his name? The guy in there? Oh, you're yeah, like Brad Pitt, very malicious. You know, Brad Pitt, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. But the whole thing of zombies, ah, I, I don't know, you know, that scares me. And I think this, uh, an infatuation that we do have about paranormal, things that are unseen, zombies, spirits, ghosts, demons, whatever you want to call it, I think part of the human fascination around it is that we do know somewhere deep in the gut, whether you believe in Jesus or not, we know that part of that is real. We know there's stuff that's unseen that affects the scene. We know that there's stuff going on that we're unaware of that is interacting with the things that we can taste and touch and smell. We do know that there are real spirits, but I think the fascination is because we want to know exactly what this is all about. And tonight, you just have to ask Jesus, if you want to know, Where does all of this fit in reality? Demons, evil, stuff that we don't want to talk about, but we're infatuated with. Just look at the words of Jesus tonight, Mark 3, and we're going to start in verse 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he, Jesus, is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, they said, he is possessed by, by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan. It's a good question, by the way. <laughs> if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And then Jesus gets to the point, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander that they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. We're just going to keep going. Uh, He said this because they were saying, Jesus has an impure spirit. Verse 31, then Jesus's mother and brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside and they're looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother, demons. Beelzebub, and doing a sin against the Holy Spirit that will condemn you forever. What a glorious night, huh? And then at the end, we all get to eat together and hug. I mean, this is a little bit of a strange uh, summer series, but we're just going through the text, and tonight we see that Jesus is confronting people's opinions about him. Now, as we're going to get into it tonight, I just want us to see something and explain it because uh, what Mark is doing, he's going to start to do again and again. And again, and this is the first occurrence of it. Verses 20 through 35 that we just looked at is what some scholars or, or teachers call a Markin sandwich. Uh, it's not a peanut butter and jelly. It's not mac and cheese, you know, uh, grilled cheese. It's, but it's Mark's kind of sandwich. And what does, it, what does that mean? Uh, a sandwich has two slices of bread and something in the middle. And by that, if you look at verses 20 and 21, you're going to see the same exact setting Jesus is in a house, there's crowds, and his family is trying to pull him away. And then on the bottom man, you read verses 31, and we're gonna get there, you see the same thing. There's a house, and there's crowds, and there's family, and they're trying to pull on Jesus. In both stories, or in the bread, people are trying to tie up Jesus because they think he's gotten a bit loose. Ironically, in the middle, the, the key to both of those stories narratives, they're meant to be put together, is going to be verse 27. We'll get there. Don't worry if I am confusing you. It will make sense. But I want you to be thinking, the middle statement, Jesus talking about a strong man and tying him up, has everything to do with both things. Mark and sandwich, congratulations to a Bible scholar. See, you just saved a bunch of money. Don't go to Bible school. I just led you on. There you go. Not really. But uh, let's now just let's look at the text with that in, a, in the back of our minds and let's just walk through and we'll see it. Two stories, two parables and a warning. Here, there we go. Verse 20, Jesus enters the house, a crowd gathers. He and his disciples aren't able to eat. His family hears about this and they want to take charge of him. Uh, you could translate this, they want to arrest him. As a matter of fact, later on, John the Baptist take charge of is actually arrested. Later when Jesus is arrested and put on trial, same word here, his family doesn't get him. So Mark's going to give two stories and then Jesus' teaching will add light to both of them. Uh, some of us, we just think that everyone understood who Jesus was. As we've been looking in the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus is completely misunderstood. And now his family's like, Jesus... We think he may be out of his mind. Now, now this could go two ways. One, they could be saying Jesus at a heart of compassion. Jesus is going too fast. He's working too hard. He's traveling. Uh, he's he's, he's going to exhaust himself. So maybe his, his mother and his family, those around him, they want to rescue him, go on a retreat, have a weekend off. Jesus, I know you got some goods, but chill. Uh, you, you're going to outpace yourself. That could be, we don't know. Mark doesn't give us the details. Or it could be, you got to remember, first century family, whatever happens to you happens to everyone. So as you do well, everyone does well. The family is the tight-knit unit unlike we see in our culture today. So if you do something embarrassing, it's not only going to affect you, it's going to affect everyone in your family. It could be that his mother and his brothers, they see Jesus teachers of the law, scribes, respected people, they think Jesus is off. They're publicly denouncing Jesus. So his mother and his brothers are like, hey, Jesus, maybe pull him back. Jesus, you need to explain yourself. We don't know why, but we do know that Jesus here is misunderstood. So people are trying to control who Jesus is and what he does. And in this case, we see it's his family. So the teachers, um, teachers of the law, verse 22, they've got another explanation. Family's like, we need to pull them away. But, but the teachers, the scholars, they've got another reason. Look at verse 22. They come down from Jerusalem. So, so the leaders from Jerusalem, the, the Mecca, the, the main city, the capital, he is possessed by Beelzebul. So, so his family's like, mm, they misunderstand you. But now the official record, now as we've been noticing in chapters 2 and 3, It's beginning worse and worse and worse. Mark is drawing us along. He wants us to see that the cross is where Jesus is going to end up at the end of Mark's gospel, and he's going to be misunderstood throughout his entire life, and he's going to be misunderstood on the cross. That's why he writes a gospel to explain the message of Jesus because he's misunderstood. What are they accusing him of? Of being possessed by Beelzebul. Now what's Beelzebul? What's that all about? It's a compound word. One of the gods that is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament that's the arch enemy of the creator god Yahweh is Baal. Beelzebul is just a compound word uh, for Baal, first half, or Beel. And Zebul is either prince or household. And so if you could throw the slide up there, Um, it's either Beelzebul means Baal the prince or Baal's house or dynasty. What they are saying is, if you want to look at an an opposition to the God that the Jewish people worshipped, it would be Baal. They are saying Jesus is getting his orders from the prince, chief arch enemy of the God that they worship and love. And so they're, they're not saying Jesus needs to check his theology or read his Bible better, they are now saying Jesus is evil. So we need to get that. They are saying it in front of the whole crowd. And so Jesus is gonna give because this accusation, family misunderstands him, the teachers misunderstand him. He wants to set the record straight, but he does it through a couple of parables that are gonna give us not only insight just for life, but insight into why Jesus comes in the first place. So let's just look at the two parables and look at the warning. Verse 23, we see the first parable. Um, Jesus called them over, begins to teach. He says, How can Satan drive out Satan? And so uh, Beelzebub, we may not know the name, but, but for the first time in the Old Testament, you don't see Beelzebub and Satan as synonymous, but Jesus just puts it together. He says, Okay, you're calling me the chief enemy. How can Satan drive out Satan? It just doesn't make any sense. There are two ways that an army can be destroyed. If you want to talk about battle, uh, because they're saying Jesus is opposed to Yahweh. Jesus is the enemy because he's doing this wonder work, healings, miracles. He's doing it by the enemy's power. Avoid Jesus. He's like, okay, if there's a battle here, between Satan, uh, a created enemy of God, and the creator of the universe. Let's just play that game. How can Satan drive out Satan? Two ways you could destroy an army. It could be destroyed from within. And, and Jesus says it. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. How many of you have been following um, the, the news about, his first name just gave me for whatever, but Snowden, what's his first name? Is it Eric Edward. Edward's snun, 30 years old, totally wrecked his life. Um, he's now caught up in no man's land, Russia. If you haven't followed the story, he was privy to our surveillance, nice way of saying spy, secrets, and he decided to post them so the whole world would know uh, how the U.S. government gets information around the world. And, and so wouldn't it be weird if people were accusing Edward Snowden is saying, well, well, you're in collusion with President Obama because President Obama wants you to give away all of our secrets so he can, live like a, he can look like a fool in front of the world. No, you'd have to say that what, what Edward Snowden is doing is trying to destroy the kingdom, so to speak, from within. If you go against your leader, you're going to destroy it. So Jesus is saying, this makes no sense. If I'm from Satan and I'm in collusion, why am I casting out demons? Why am I releasing people from the very power that Satan wants to put over people? It makes no sense. A kingdom can be destroyed from within, and, and, and it will destroy itself. So, verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand and will come. What you're saying makes no sense. That's parable number one. You can destroy a kingdom from within. Satan goes against Satan, his kingdom will crush. We get that one. That one makes sense. Now the second one's a little more subtle. Verse uh, 27, and this is the key to everything. In fact, no one uh, can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. So you could destroy, uh, an, an army could be destroyed from within, Someone gives away the secrets, someone gives away the information, it could implode. Uh, or a stronger force can come from the outside, and this is what Jesus is saying about his mission. Now, who is a strong man? I want to I stop the rumors. The strong man is not Brooke Moser, okay? Now, we all know that Brooke Moser, Brooke Buff Moser in the back, <laughs> is a strong man, but Brooke is not the strong man. What is he talking about here, um, and how does this apply? Think back to Satan. Satan is strong. And in the the parable here, Satan is the strong man. So so Jesus says, okay, if there's someone who has stuff, who has possessions, who has an army, who has spoils, what do you need to do? You need to tie up the strong strong man. Then if you do that, you can plunder the strong man's house. And so here Jesus is saying with clarity, the strong man is Satan, but I am the stronger man. People are wondering who is this Jesus and he's giving us insight into his mission. Jesus saw people and still sees people today as the goodness of God, created in the image of God and for God and by God and should be connected with their creator. But he sees people as oppressed and under the bondage of an enemy. Jesus is saying, subtly through a parable, but they would have got this if they were listening and their hearts were open. He's saying that people are broken and people are under the thumb of of an enemy who's called Satan. And in order to bring God's people free, what I need to do, Jesus is saying, is I need to tie up a strong man. And if I can tie up the one who's doing damage to God's people, then I'll be able to plunder his house. I'll be able to rescue God's good people. You and me who have been ensnared by sin. We did it. We got to own up to it. But it's left a wreck and God wants to make us free. And Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger man and I'm going to do it. Now, um, where does this fit in? In Isaiah 49, there is a prophecy, and this is what Jesus is alluding to. Again, those of us who were just not as familiar with the early part of the story, Jesus is fulfilling what Isaiah is alluding to. Can plunder, spoils, goods, be taken from warriors or captives, be rescued from the fierce? But uh, this is what the Lord says, and I want you to see this. This is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh, this is what Creator God says. Not just anybody. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder, retrieved from the fear. So there's gonna be a battle. I, God, will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. So there is this, this picture, this little hint that there is gonna be battle, there is gonna be a warrior, but God is going to come and rescue. I'll make your oppressors, this is beautiful, eat their own flesh. They will drink on their own blood. I don't know what that is. It doesn't sound good. As with wine, then all mankind will know, here's the key, I, the Lord, am your savior. I'm your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Uh, Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is pitting himself in the place of the Lord, Yahweh. Jesus just isn't some messenger with some good news. He's saying, I, the Lord, who here had promised when my people are being fiercely opposed and oppressed, I, the warrior, am going to come and I'm going to steal them back. I'm going to be redeemer. I'm going to be savior. And Jesus is saying uh, in this little parable, uh, that is the key. His family didn't understand him and neither did most people. But Jesus in the parable is saying, Uh, I, the stronger one, have come. So those are the two parables. Uh, You can be destroyed from the inside. You can be destroyed from the outside. But Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger one, and I have come to make people free. Well, if that is the case, what's up with the warning? Because the warning comes right after it. Verse 28, let's take a look at it. Truly I tell you, this is right after Jesus saying, I'm gonna set people free. People can be forgiven all their sins, and every slander they utter but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit will never be forgiven they're guilty of an eternal sin and so jesus switches and says okay there's something god's coming to make people free people are oppressed i want to bring them out but there is something that i am not going to release so so what is this whole what's the sin what's the blaspheming the holy spirit um, there's a quote by uh, Gary Bershears. He's a pres- professor of theology at Western. He's a mentor. He's actually teaching downtown tonight. If you've wondered, because when I was growing up, I was really freaked out by this. this. You can do a sin that God won't forgive. And as a kid, I'm like, man, have I done it? Have I done it? I don't know about you, but like, I'm, I'm in trouble. Like if, if, I've met, if I do something, I'm toast. It's over. And this really helped me out. He says, I think the unforgivable sin is refusing the calling of the Spirit. Anyone who feels the pull of the Holy Spirit and refuses it remains in unforgiveness. However, if they respond, then, like Jesus said, every sin, no matter how awful it is, is forgivable. That is Jesus' main point. Every sin can be forgiven. But if you refuse the way of forgiveness, there's no possibility of being forgiven. People do refuse the Spirit and His work today. What's the immediate thing that Jesus is pointing out? Jesus is saying the sin that can't be forgiven is in their case, teachers of the law, scribes, the people who know God and his, his law, they're claiming that what Jesus does by the Holy Spirit is actually by a satanic spirit. And it uncovers something. It's not an occasional, if I mess up, Jesus isn't gonna forgive me, or if I said some magical phrase that blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I'm toast. No, it is a hardness of heart that refuses to see what God through His Holy Spirit is doing right in front of your eyes. They saw the miracles. They saw God by His Spirit through the Son, the wonder of the Creator, in front of their eyes. And rather than seeing God at work and saying, Wow, look at how He sets people free, in their heart there was such a hardness that they didn't hear the words of Jesus who explained the good news and receive it with joy and repent. And so Jesus is saying every, and here the main point, every sin that you could commit is forgivable. And that is the main point. But there is a place that people can find themselves in. And for them, the teachers of the law, Jesus is saying, he's not saying you've committed it and there's no hope. Jesus gives, and this is beautiful, a warning. He's actually warning them. He's like, I know where this hardness of heart is leading. And if you continue claiming that I am sent from Satan and you miss what God is doing before your eyes, uh, that will move on to eternity. There's something that Jesus will not forgive and it is the person who says, I don't need forgiveness. And so in the broader sense, that blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that total hardness of heart, the sin that God, God won't forgive is the person who is so hard that they refuse what the Spirit wants to do in their heart. You just need to know this. The Holy Spirit is already at work in your life right now whether you believe in Him or not. The Spirit of God is trying to get a hold of every human being and help you to see how great Jesus is and what what he's done and wants to do in you. He wants you to know this good news. He wants you to live in this good news. And so the Spirit is already at work in every person on planet Earth. But if you resist, and you resist, and you resist, and you resist, and for them the evidence was calling Jesus not just a bad teacher or off, but of Satan, it just exposed what was already in their soul. The good news is, uh, you, you may be asking, well, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? The person who would ask that kind of question, it already shows you probably haven't, because if you're wondering if you've offended God at the point of resisting the Spirit, it's probably showing that somewhere inside you really want to know what's right and what's good and what's of God. And so there is a warning, yes, you can get so hard that that sin will not be forgiven and you'll die apart from Christ and you will Live for eternity apart from Christ, but that's not God's plan because the bigger story is Jesus claims in front of all of these followers, he forgives every single sin. And so Jesus gives two parables and then he gives a warning, and then there's this weird connection, but maybe this will make sense now that we've heard what Jesus says about the tying of the strong man. Let's just, let's just finish up uh, the text. Verse uh, 30, he was saying this to them because they were saying he's got an impure spirit. Now Jesus shifts, and again, this is that second half. Then Jesus's mother and brothers arrive. Again, we see the same scene. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers, uh, they're outside and they're looking for you. And so here you see this weird scene. If we read it fast, we don't get it. Where is Jesus' family? On the inside of the house or the outside of the house? Jesus' family is on the outside of the house, which would have been really weird. Here, U.S, 2013, we don't care. But if in the first century, if you're having a meeting in your home, you're going to have your fam- the family should be on the inside. The crowd should be on the outside. And here in the setting, it's in total reverse. And so what Jesus is saying is, there are people, just like in the beginning we saw in the first story, his family was confused as to who Jesus was. Now he's saying in a broader sense, when Jesus is talking to his mother and his brothers, the point in the second story is almost the same as the first, in that you have something that shouldn't be happening. Family should be on the inside, crowd should be on the outside, but it's in reverse. There are people who should be in relationship with Jesus, who should be uh, close to Jesus, and are not. The story has been turned upside down. And so Jesus says this, a crowd gathers around in verse 32, and they say, your brothers and your uh, mother, they're outside looking for you. And Jesus says in verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? uh, Jesus asked. Who are they? Jesus is going to redefine what it means to be related to him. In the first century, as I said before, there's no greater tie, no greater bond than your family. You didn't escape. Today, we grow up, we leave the house, go to college, move anywhere you want. In the first century, you lived with your family and you got married. You either built out off of their house and lived in the same family unit or you live right next door. You were in the same family business. Family was everything. And, and so, so Jesus is saying, who are they? He's not downing the nuclear family. Jesus is not against his mother and brothers and sisters. He's, if you get that, you missed the point. What he is saying is there is a bond there's a connection that is closer than blood. There was no closer relationship than family in the first century. Jesus is saying, if you really want to know my message, it is that there is an even tighter relationship. I'm calling people to all out follow me. If you think that your family tie is strong, I am looking for followers who will have their allegiance even tighter to me than the family bond. Now you say like, well Well, how is that like scandalous and weird? In the first century, that family tie was the closest tie. In the first century, if you were born a Jew, if you were born of the, of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, many of those who were Jesus is speaking to, they were banking on the fact that they had a rightness, a closeness. They are the people of God. Why? because I'm of the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus is saying, you are misunderstanding family relationship. Any of you, he's saying to his first century listeners, who think that just because you were born in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just because you have the Torah, just because you go to temple, just because you go to the synagogue, just because you fast, just because you... If you think that all those are the markers of right relationship with with God, you've missed the point entirely. I'm looking for a heart that is absolutely in allegiance to me. So don't bank on the externals. Externally, brothers and sisters should be close to Jesus, but in the story, externally, they're on the outside. Jesus is saying that I am looking for followers who will pursue pursue me with all of their heart and all of their mind, and all of their strength, and don't lean on those externals. Now, there's ever a great message for us to be sharing with our friends, with our neighbors, our coworkers, especially in America that's heard so much of Jesus and had so much of church, it is great that we live in a day and age where people think if you go to a building or do a few things, that can make me all right with God. But just like Jesus, we know that the good news is different. And just like the family tie or the heritage tie isn't enough, Jesus is saying, you really want to understand my message? That's why Jesus later would say in these radical words, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their what? Cross and follow me. I am looking for people who have nothing, who are not banking on anything, but are willing to go my way full on. And so his family didn't understand that. The teachers of the law didn't understand that. And I think sometimes, because we're so inoculated by all this Jesus stuff, sometimes we forget the radical claim of the gospel. The radical claim of the gospel is Jesus forgives how many sins? Every sin. All sin can be forgiven. But when you choose to walk in that forgiveness, how much of you does Jesus look for? All of it. And so he can say, let's just finish up the text, Verse 33, who are my brothers? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? He looked at those seated in the circle around him. The Peter, the James, and the John, the, the apostles, the others that we read about in the last few weeks. Those who, when Jesus walked up to him and said, come and follow me, what did Mark tell us? They dropped their nets. They laughed, how much? All, and they followed him. Absolute allegiance to this, to this leader, to this king, to Jesus. And this is the beauty that has been sometimes left out in our presenting of the gospel. I come to Jesus with nothing but baggage. Jesus sets me free. Not because I was born of the nation of Israel or because I go to church, or because I do all these things. It's because Jesus came to tie up who? The strong man. The mission of Jesus is to do the real work of defeating Satan and his lies that we have bought since the beginning. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent in Genesis 3 and they follow his way instead of God's way. And and bondage, sin, brokenness, divorce, all sorts of havoc wreaks the human race. And Jesus comes not just to put a Band-Aid, but to cure it once for all. And so Jesus alone ties up the strong man. But the good news of the gospel is now it can set anyone free but what he is looking for is for a community of people who will live in that freedom and will follow Jesus no matter what. And that is the high call of what it means to be a disciple. And then Jesus says at verse 35, whoever does, who, who, who's my brothers? Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so the so to pull this all together, what, is, what does it mean for us to do God's will? How, how many say, like, I want to be counted as one of those who say, yeah, I'm a full-on Jesus follower, not perfect, but growing. I'm, I'm, I'm being exposed. Jesus is telling me the things. I need to let go, pick up my cross, and follow him. What does it mean to live that kind of lifestyle where we can be those who do God's will? Three, three thoughts, they're from the text here. And we'll move our way towards the table where we'll celebrate tonight what Jesus has done in tying up the strong man. Thought number one, we we are called, and what does it mean to do God's will? We're called to be partners with Jesus. Jesus looked at those seated in the circle around him, and then he said, here are my brothers and sisters. And so what does it look like tangibly? To follow Jesus is to partner with him in the rescue, listen, of not just me and my family, but of the entire world. Now that I'm following him, remember, as we've been seeing, Jesus calls disciples last week. He gives them authority. He's going to send them out. You and I, as his followers, we're called to live on the mission of Jesus. So Jesus gives us the power and Jesus gives us the message. The good news is his. And now Jesus gives us the space, the places, the people, and we're called to go. And so the beautiful thing is you and I can partner with God, those who are his mother, his brothers, his close family, are those who are concerned about what Jesus is concerned about. And as we've been seeing time and again, Jesus is concerned about the least of these. He's concerned about the broken. He's concerned about the overlooked. He's concerned about the poor. He's concerned about the poor with no money. He's concerned about the poor with money and with a boat and three houses and cars and vacations, but are poor in spirit because they're living for stuff which is gonna burn, and Jesus wants to set people free. So the beauty is tonight, you and I as his followers can do the will of the Father by taking what we know of this Jesus and partnering with God to get his message out. The second thing is we can engage in battle. we got to remember that none of this is gonna be easy. Following Jesus is easy. Would you agree? No. If it's easy, you really haven't been following long. There are seasons of peace, rest, and blessing, but there are also seasons when you feel like it's just just a battle. Well, Jesus said it in Matthew 10 later on before he sends his disciples out. He says, The student's not above the teacher. The servant isn't above the master. If they're calling me Beelzebub of the prince of Baal... If they call me of the League of Satan, how much more the members of his household? So, when people do misunderstand or we stand up for the gospel and it doesn't work out, we're in good company. There is a battle, and it's always a battle when you are living to see people set free in Jesus' name. If I'm the enemy, who am I going to oppose? I'm going to oppose the people who are on the mission of Jesus. I'm going to oppose the people who are most adamant about getting good news out. So the more I try to do and partner with God's will and rescue people in the name of Jesus, the more I can expect seasons of opposition. But here's the good news. Ephesians 6, Paul reflecting on all this, on battle imagery, he tells us be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. God's given us all that we need. Remember, Jesus, the stronger one, tied up, the strong man in the cross and in the resurrection, death had been defeated, sin was fully paid for, and now in light of that, we have armor. Whose armor? The armor of who? God. So we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. So when we're living in seasons, some of you right now you go through a season of opposition. The enemy is coming against you in small ways and in big ways. But know this: you're not going out empty-handed. When we go out on the mission of Jesus, when we choose to live Jesus-centered lives, to live on display, to follow him, so that others would know what it's like to follow him, and and it seems like opposition, you have armor. So our struggle is never against people, but against rulers, authorities, powers in the dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, we we can make a choice. We can put on God's full armor, We could be equipped with all that God's given so that when the day of evil comes, we can take and stand our ground. And after we've done everything, we can stand. So God's given us the spirit. God's given us everything we need. We don't need to be afraid of the work of the evil one who's come against us. And so we want to avoid two extremes. And both are extreme. One extreme uh, is to avoid it all. And to say, I don't know about all that spiritual stuff, I, just, I think it's in people's minds. And we can downplay the work of the evil one, and that is a dangerous place to be. And in all of the world, I would say as I've traveled around, my own observation, not Bible, but I think I may be right, especially us in the West, in Europe, and in America, we are living in that extreme we downplay that there is Satan and there are demonic powers and there are strongholds and there is evil and it's against Jesus and the Jesus people. I think we, we hover on that extreme because I don't see it, I don't believe it. And then there's the other extreme and we could be obsessed with it. And that's equally dangerous where we're looking for the demon in every bush and we're casting out everything under the sun. And no, that, that was like your sin and you were dumb and, and you know, the wages of sin is death. That wasn't the devil, that was you. And so there, there are, I wasn't pointing at you. <laughs> You're like, oh, sorry, you know. But, but, but there, there is demonic and there is evil, but we don't want to obsess about it. What we do know is that Jesus already tied the strong man. And so I don't have to worry and I don't have to fret. I just need to simply obey. And the third thing is, how do I really live this out? I need to receive and live in the cycle of forgiveness. Receive forgiveness again, and then in brackets, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Because I don't want to pit up this this weird picture that only those people who've got it right are following Jesus. No way. Jesus is the one who sets us free, And he says, people can be forgiven each and every issue. And so as we go to the table tonight, as we worship, we need to remember that what Jesus has done, he has done for you. So if you started on the trail six months ago following Jesus and find yourself stammering and stumbling and having a tough go of it, you just need to know this. He's not looking for perfect followers. He's looking for followers. And if you'll be honest with whatever issue you're dealing with, whether it's evil that's come against you or just your own sin or your own brokenness or repetitive habits, whatever that is, Jesus forgives it all. And so I think one of the great lies that Satan tells us is that you've gone too far or you've waited too long. And so tonight, as we think about what Jesus has already done, cross-resurrection, victory is won, Anyone who wants to be free of sin can be. Anyone's invited tonight to be transformed by Jesus. But maybe tonight you feel like you've just gone too far. Jose, you don't understand. I did that again. And can I just tell you with grace and truth, what Jesus has done is enough again and again and again and again. So if you need grace tonight, there is grace for you. Now, if you need truth and to know that it's time to open up and those who confess their sin, Jesus is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to those who confess their sins. And He's just and He will forgive and clean of all wrongdoing. It it may be that tonight's the time to say, you know what? I've been hiding it, but it's not too long, it's not too late. What Jesus has done, he's done for me. Tonight, I just want to receive rescue. I want to receive forgiveness. I'm here to remind you tonight that what Jesus has done is enough for you.